Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Our guest today is the firm's chief market strategist, Bill O'Grady. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Today, we're discussing the Confluence 2020 geopolitical outlook and some of the issues that might affect markets this year. Each of these issues that we'll look at represents an uncertainty, and we've often been told how much markets dislike uncertainty. Bill, you identify five issues in particular. The first is the 2020 presidential elections. Would you say this presidential election year presents more risks to stability than a normal presidential election year? Yes. Uh, in particular, foreign manipulation and partisanship are two factors that could lead to unrest and increase the odds of what we like to refer to statistically as fat-tailed risks. Those are bad ones. Uh, they can be real good ones, too, but in this case, it's, they're, they're, they're bad ones. Let's focus on the prospect of manipulation by foreign countries. Certainly, America has been educated a little bit about this particular aspect since our last election. Aren't American citizens more sensitive now to what's happening? Perhaps we're more uh, able to resist, or do we continue to be sitting ducks? Well, let's be clear. Foreign nations have an interest in swaying our election and have had these interests for years. We're the world's hegemon, and thus foreign nations have an incentive to help select a president to their liking. What's different now is that foreign nations have a low-cost and effective way to send messaging. Social media has changed how the political process works. It's kind of similar to what happened when radio was introduced and television was introduced. In a sense, foreign interference isn't anything new, but the delivery platform is. Education, at the same time, only plays a minor role. In these sorts of matters, the British philosopher David Hume is probably right. Our passions drive our decisions, and we use our intellect to justify our biases. Is the fact that the electorate seems extremely divided make us more prone to manipulation? I think this is a key vulnerability. This interference would be much less effective if the partisan divides were not as wide. Surveys show that parents would be more comfortable if their child married a person of a different religion than a, a political party shows how stark the divides have become. The partisan situation makes us more prone to believe the worst in those on the other side, and thus this allows foreign interests to play on those differences. Now, you bring out an interesting point, I thought, in your December 16th weekly geopolitical report presenting this outlook, and that is that foreign actors may work at cross-purposes. Explain. Foreign nations have different interests. Uh, one of the writers that we like to use in these circumstances is a guy named Walter Russell Mead, who wrote a book about the four archetypes of, of American foreign policy. And to do that, he used four f historical figures, Hamilton, Wilson, Jackson, and Jefferson, to describe policy. Hamiltonians are considered policy realists who support American business interests. They dominated the Cold War era. Wilsonians are moralists. They take, and they're very big on democracy promotion. They have been the most common uh, position in the post-Cold War era. These are the two most interventionist of the four. Jacksonians are Jeffer and Jeffersonians tend toward isolationism, but the former will intervene over matters of honor. Uh, we consider President Trump to be Jacksonian, 
uh, President Obama tended to lean Jeffersonian. Russia would really like to see a Jeffersonian or Jacksonian president, but would oppose a Hamiltonian or Wilsonian. So in a Trump-Biden contest, for example, they would support Trump. But in a Trump-Sanders election, they may just as well side with Sanders. China would likely side with Biden if he wins the nomination because he would be considered more of a Hamiltonian. Israel would probably support any Republican, Iran, any Democrat. Well, Iran certainly has uh, a lot of cyber capability. Uh, We've been hearing a lot about that lately. So let's look at Iran for a moment. Do you expect better U.S.-Iran relations going forward now because of the events of the past month or two, or worse? Well, occasionally, a forecast comes true faster than we expected, and this is one of them. Iran's in a very difficult spot. Their economy is struggling. They don't have a path forward in the short term, other than the humiliation of negotiating a new deal with the U.S. to get out of their position. On the other hand, our take the U.S. wants to get out of the Middle East anyway, and so if Iran just simply waits, it might get what it wants, which is a chance to dominate the region. The problem for Iran is sitting tight might just not be possible. When we think about a a conventional war, that's frightening enough, but is there any way for investors to prepare for a possible cyber war with Iran? Well, there are listed companies in the cyber defense realm. Other things we recommend, keeping your malware up to date having some paper copy records of financial accounts, and the usual precautions for national calamities consistent with preparing for a long power outage would make sense. Another issue you identify is China's debt. Could you discuss the emergence of corporate bond defaults in China and what this says about the challenges China is facing? China is nearing the end of its development model. Throughout the Industrial Revolution, the world has tended to have at least one high-growth, low-cost nation that develops into a major exporting power. In the process of development, in this case of China and Japan as well, uh, they did it by suppressing domestic consumption to create savings, which they use for investment. In the initial stages of the model, everything works great because the investment infrastructure is so meager that any investment tends to be positive. But eventually, you end up with overinvestment. The model depends on excess savings, which eventually leads to export promotion as a development model. And the build out of this investment infrastructure was financed by debt. So initially, the debt is self-liquidating, but eventually growth becomes overly dependent on investment. And thus, to continue to grow, you have to take on additional debt, unfortunately, which is increasingly likely to, to go bad. This transition of moving from a high-growth, low-cost country to a normal, developed country is really painful. When the British tried to manage this, they end up conflicting with both the U.S. and Germany. They went to war with the latter. When the U.S. made its transition, we, we refer to that period as the Great Depression. Japan faced this problem in the late 1980s, and so far they've gone through three decades of stagnation. It's really tough to manage this transition. For China, is there a likely outcome? We're betting on the Japan solution. Uh, The trick is if the Communist Party can justify its legitimacy under conditions of slow economic growth. If they can't, then revolution and turmoil will result. Another major issue you identify is demographics. And I have to admit, this hadn't been in the forefront of what I was expecting. It made me stop and think a little bit. Uh, You call this a slow burn issue, but still a very important one. 
the world is getting older, birth rates are down. And I was thinking uh, for many, many years when we've been told that the prospect of overpopulation and growth that's too fast is what we should be fearing. But now you're saying the opposite is true. Could you discuss some of the basic ways that population trends affect investment returns? When I was uh, in the middle part of my career, I, I ran the Futures Research Department at A.G. Edwards. And one of the things when you're training a new commodity analyst is you really don't pay a lot of attention to demand for most commodities because it's driven by population growth and the population always tends to expand. And so you focus more on, on supply issues. And that's true across a lot of areas of, of economics. So initially, when you, when you have slowing population growth, your economy is going to grow slowly and you're going to end up with persistent overcapacity and thus low inflation. When the population is growing rapidly, the economy develops an investment infrastructure and it's almost assumed that that growth will continue and thus you, you, you tend to continue to invest as if that population growth is going to be maintained. Slower population growth means you have persistent overcapacity, which leads to weak productivity, slow growth, and low inflation. For investors, it means you're constantly chasing uh, yield. You're trying to find how you can get a decent yield, uh, and it tends to lead investors to take on more risk than they're comfortable with. Hmm. At China, I've been reading lately, this is a particularly difficult uh, issue because of the one-child policy. I mean, they, they have only themselves to blame for some of this trend. It's, it's true. Do you see any chance of reversing this trend? How, how do you stimulate population growth? It's really tough. We've seen China, uh, as you just mentioned, try to reverse its one-child policy, but now people are so used to it, they're not having more than one, one kid. In, in Western societies, uh, smaller families have become the norm. The stigma of having no children has pretty much been lost. So the best answer is, frankly, to move people to where population growth is low. In other words, immigration is the best short-term solution, but that solution carries with it significant political, cultural, and social problems. You note that the country of India is bucking this trend. Is this good news for the Indian economy? Does this increase the attractiveness of India for investments? The one thing to remember about demography is that it is a factor, but not the only one. India does have relatively favorable demographics, but it has other issues such as an overbearing bureaucracy and deep sectarian problems that weaken the investment case. The last major issue you identify in the report is North Korea. In your view, what is the overriding danger here for investors? Kim Jong-un is a bit like Alex Forrest of Fatal Attraction. He will not be ignored. Kim promised his people to reduce the focus on military spending and to lift the plight of ordinary North Koreans. But as long as sanctions are in place, this is not likely to occur. Time is on President Trump's side, may not be on Kim's. Thus, the potential for action to encourage the U.S. to engage is quite high. I noticed Brexit is not in your top five. Why not? Well, it's not that it's not important, but since the path of Brexit was in place by the time we, we wrote the report, we felt that for 2020, this issue was mostly behind us. However, it may return in 2021 if the UK and EU cannot agree on a trade deal. Looking at the geopolitical risks overall, Bill, can you estimate the likelihood of a market shock this year? Well, it's always hard to quantify 
but the three that we think carry the most headline risk are Iran, North Korea, and the elections. And of the three, uh, the last one is the one that's most likely to weaken, weaken investor confidence at some point. We mentioned this report was published on December 13th. It's been a while since then. Anything changed? About the only thing that's popped up that's of, of interest is how rapidly conditions deteriorated with Iran. It, it is uh, pretty stunning how that, that has occurred. And we think probably one of the key reasons why is that the United States finds itself kind of cross-purposes. Uh, it wants to reduce Iran's influence, but it wants to reduce its own as well. In the absence of the U.S., uh, the Middle East becomes kind of a jump ball for Turkey, Russia, and Iran. And uh, actually, we're not too keen on any of those three. But we just don't want to do it ourselves anymore. And that is becoming rapidly kind of the consensus among the foreign policy intelligentsia that the Middle East just isn't, isn't worth the effort. This has been the Confluence of Ideas, featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can find links there to the firm's daily comment, weekly geopolitical report, other research articles as well. And one of the weekly geopolitical reports does present the firm's 2020 outlook, which was the subject of our discussion today. We mentioned that was the report that was published on December 13th. Of course, it's an easy step to subscribe by email to any of these reports. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice and that this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. You can also find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. Our engineer for these podcasts is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.